This is Farmland. Coming up, Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Michael Creed, will address concerns over a looming fodder crisis this winter. Agri-food economist and former chairman of Meat Industry Ireland, Kieran Fitzgerald, will outline his views on the potential impact of Brexit on the beef sector. And MEP and first vice president of the European Parliament, Mairead McGuinness, will discuss the stark reality of farm safety on Irish farms and across the EU. But first, Conor Finnerty has this report on how one farmer fared during the drought conditions this summer. Shane Fitzgerald is a dairy farmer, milking 180 cows near Port Law in County Waterford. Like a lot of farmers, Shane has been battling to overcome the challenges caused by the drought in recent weeks. It's been really two months, I suppose, now there's been hardly any rain at all. Like, you know, we got none in June or, or July at all, really. A small bit one Sunday, maybe two millimetres is about it. Um, so it's just been like, like the whole country, it's been just baking heat for the last, last couple of months, really. The, the grass growth's actually been nil for the last month, really. Like, I've stopped measuring it now for the last three weeks, because there's no point. Um, it's depressing to go out and, and to see the same amount of grass in the field as last summer, even, even less at times. Like. Since grass growth has halted, Shane has had to start feeding silage to his herd. This raises some concerns ahead of next winter. It looks like we've only about 50% of what we need at the moment, and we're eating into that as we speak. So um, we got a good first cut, but our second cut had to be basically zero grazed and fed out to the cows, so we've no second cut. Um, we're really relying on, on getting maybe a third cut maybe in September if the, if the rain comes, but it's getting, it's getting late in the year now even for that. Um, and we do have some, we have 20 acres of maize as well, um, which we wouldn't normally have, so we're hoping to get a good crop of that maybe, and the rest is going to have to be made up with, with concentrates really. So we're basically, we're spending 400 euro a day and just supplements alone, like um, just for the milking cows. Um, that's 180 cows, so it's working out like it's it's 220 a day, 2 euro 20 a day that we wouldn't normally have. Um, and it's like it's 2,800 a week, so it's a serious extra cost. And that's only just holding, holding the production. Um, so, yeah, it's going to, the same for everyone though, like, you know, there's going to be big bills to be paid back, like, and, and it's going to be, um, yeah, it's going to be a tough, it's going to be tough the rest of the year and next year as well, like, it's going to have a knock-on effect for everyone, really. Once rainfall levels return to normal, farmers will still have to face the challenges that have arisen as a result of this summer's drought. I, I probably won't believe it's going to rain till I see it now at this stage, because every, every week they seem to be saying it's going to rain towards the end of the week, and when time comes around we don't seem to get any, so... Um, yeah, like, even if it rains today, like, it's going to be probably it's going to be two or three weeks anyway before there's any enough grass on the fields even to, to graze them. Like, you know, when we actually get rain, we're probably going to have to pack up the cows in the sacrifice field and just feed them just silage just to give the grass a chance because we don't want to be chasing our tails to the rest of the year. And then it's maybe going to be into September, probably October at this stage, before we even contemplate getting maybe a third cut. Like, so everyone's going to go late this year and like, I don't know if we're going to, to graze it towards the end of the year if we stop it for silage. So it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be hard to know. It's going to be a tough year really for the rest of the year. Minister, um, we see there the extreme conditions that farmer face, farmers faced during the summer. And if I can bring you back to this time last year, some farm organisations were saying that there was a father crisis. At the time, you said that it was a localised issue due to inclement weather. But as the months went on, went on, we had storms, hurricanes, unprecedented snow, and the father crisis ensued. If I'm a farmer and I'm looking at this situation, do I think this is a once-off? 
or do I think this is a situation where our weather patterns and cycles are changing? And this is a situation that I will have to deal with potentially as the norm from, from here on. And if that is the situation, what is the view of the department on measures that need to be taken to mitigate against this type of situation and emergency measures also? Well, I think we're living with the, the manifestation of climate change, uh, which um, is more frequent extreme weather events. And if you take even since my own appointment in May of 2016, that back end we had the harvest difficulties. We had the flooding in Donegal this time last year in August of, of, of 2017. And we had the long wet winter and late spring, uh, storm Ophelia, snowstorms, uh, and now we've had a drought. So I think that's ample evidence in itself. And I mean, look around the world, we, we, we're seeing multiple similar examples of kind of uh, extreme weather events occurring more frequently and uh, that's what climate change is about so I think the reality is we have to to plan for climate change as uh, something that, that will impact uh, on our uh, daily lives whether you're a farmer or not and certainly in terms of farming um, I think it's clear that uh, provision needs to be made and uh, account taken of the fact that more extreme weather events are likely to occur with greater frequency. And so what measures are the department looking at to deal with this as a long-term scenario that farmers will face in the future? Well, I mean, in the context of climate change itself, we, we are signatories as, an, as a state to the Paris Accord, and that brings with it an obligations to deal with uh, reducing our carbon footprint. And, you know, it, it's interesting in that context, um, many of the steps that are required in, in the context of being more carbon efficient are also proven to be, in fact, uh, steps that deliver greater uh, economic profitability. Um, now, having said that, that's you know a part of the the response. Obviously, there are um, you know immediate issues that farmers have to grapple with in the context of fodder provision, for example. And you know, in in your intro and, and in in the uh, clip that we've seen, it has been an extraordinarily difficult time for farmers. I acknowledge that. Uh, I come from that farming background myself. And I mean, it's physically demanding, it's financially challenging, uh, and indeed emotionally and, and, and psychologically challenging for farmers to deal with that relentless, uh, you know, difficulty in, in, in the context of weather. We've had probably, uh, you know, the longest winter and late spring uh, in living memory, uh, and then followed by perhaps six weeks of normality, and then, you know, the current drought. I appreciate it has been, you know, not a uniform picture across the country, but uh, where it has been most pronounced, it's certainly been very, very challenging. And what the department has been doing, I suppose, is uh, initially we convened a stakeholder group, and the purpose of that was to, to look back, and that started its work in early May, and to see what were the lessons to be learned from the previous winter and late spring. But very quickly, the terms of reference for that stakeholder group, which includes farm organisations, the co-ops, the banks, the department, TAGAS, private agricultural advisors, all of the usual stakeholders. Um, the, the terms of reference had to change because very quickly we were dealing with effectively a drought situation. And so the most important work I think that that group, which is representative of the industry, did was tailoring advice to farmers as to how to come through the current difficulties um, and maybe for, in a way parking for a moment 
the the look back that's important as well in terms of uh, you know what are the steps we need to take and I think you know we've taken a number of steps for example most recently announced um, a fodder import package we've had uh, proposals in terms of the tillage sector to grow more uh, forage crops. We've extended the, the deadlines for the spreading of chemical and, and, and organic fertilizer. Um, so we, we've been responding to, to the challenge in a multifaceted way. This isn't an issue that lends itself to one single policy response that will solve it for everybody. Um, and there are, I think, advices available through that uh, uh, stakeholder group um, particularly led by Taugusk and, and, and the private advisory sector, which is really important for farmers in terms of the individual message to them in terms of managing the challenge within their farmyard because no two farms are, are the same. And, uh, you know, whether you're running a beef or a tillage or a horticulture or a dairy enterprise, the message is, 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 is different and tailored. And I think that really has been, in some respects, unsung, but really, really important work, the advice that has been given to farmers in terms of that uh, challenge. Just picking you up on that point, Minister, and I know, look, we don't want to look back too much, but I suppose when we look at the timeline that really kind of led us to where we are today, the, the situation wasn't really seen as a crisis until the dairy side, the, the processors announced that they were going to start importing and then it, it added extra weight to the issue. Do you think that's an indication of the influence that the dairy sector has on the agri-industry at the moment? Well, no, and I, I mean, to be fair to the, to the importers, and they weren't all, all of the approved importers weren't just dairy processors, it's important to say. There were other uh, processors uh, and other importers who were non-dairy cooperatives. Um, and indeed, in, the dairy co-ops also extended availability of the fodder they imported to non-dairy people. I think that's important because there is, uh, you know, an element of being in this together and we, we collectively uh, navigate the challenge. Um, I, I, the dairy processors are huge uh, economic operations they are global players and um, we would engage regularly with them I mean we would have been in consultation with them long before for example we announced the recent initiative on imports and we would have been monitoring the situation through the stakeholder group and through uh, bilateral engagement with all of the partners including those dairy co-ops as we did in the previous uh, import scheme earlier this year for the you know the last winter and, and spring. So, I mean, uh, it's not the case that, you know, when, when the dairy processor says, says jump, uh, that everybody else uh, pays heed and attention. Uh, we, we engage across all of the stakeholders and all of the industry, be it dairy processors or others. I understand that. I appreciate that. Um, but do you think that on the dairy side, are the processors more engaged with the dairy suppliers on the ground uh, than perhaps other sectors? within the industry? Do you think that there's greater levels of communication? Um, at the moment, you know, the dairy, on the dairy side, there is, you know, extended credit facilities. There is a lot of information out there. They're importing the father. And um, do you think that there's greater engagement perhaps on that side of the sector? Well, I think by the, by the nature of it, uh, dairy co-ops and dairy processors have almost a daily interaction with their clients. They're in their yards collecting their milk product. Um, on, a, on a daily or, or every second day basis. 
And that level of interaction obviously is close and intense and there's a higher level of awareness perhaps about what's exactly happening in that farmyard that there may be on a cooperative uh, client who might be in the tillage or in, in the beef sector. And they have clients and have extended both the credit facilities uh, to both the tillage and, and, and beef uh, operators as well. So, yes, I mean, undoubtedly, one of the things uh, that points which I made early on to the stakeholder group was that, yes, the co-ops have a high visibility on the dairy side, but it was important through all of the partners, including the dairy uh, cooperatives, that they would reach out to the non-dairy side. And I think in fairness to them and to the other stakeholders, uh, that happened. And I mean, as I said earlier, uh, the importers of father weren't just the dairy cooperatives because uh, you know there were a whole range of other people involved in importing as well that were approved by the department to so do. And that was because of their client base and their reach to others, perhaps non-dairy. Um, and obviously, Minister, you're involved in the beef roundtables. Um, what are the beef processors saying on this issue in terms of mitigating for the future? Well, I mean, it's uh, a challenge for the industry as a whole. Um, and, and the advice is, I think, that we're going to have to plan for um, more frequent uh, extreme weather events. And whether you're dairy or not, that, that is a, the challenge is to have sufficient fodder in your farmyard. Whether you're feeding dairy cows or whether you're feeding store cattle or, you know, rearing sheep, uh, having sufficient fodder is, is, is the challenge. So the advice is critical to farmers. You know, as we emerge from that now, and I appreciate still there are some areas that are significantly challenged by the soil moisture deficit, particularly in the south and southeast. Um, I, I think uh, the message is really important that wherever you can save additional fodder in the country, um, though it may not be for yourself, it's imperative that every effort is made to so do because, yeah, we will import. Uh, but import will only be a small part of the solution. And for example, some of the concessions we've got from the European Commission on lost lands and low input permanent pasture, that will release potentially up to, you know, hundreds of thousands of hectares and hundreds of thousands of tons of potential fodder, which will be far, which will dwarf anything that we will import. So the real message is in the context of the challenge we face is though you may have sufficient provision yourself, Everybody should maximise every available opportunity to harvest additional fodder, whether it's a second cut or a third cut silage, whether it's planting, uh, you know, catch crops in, in, in lands that would otherwise remain fallow until next year's um, spring for, for, for the cereal sector. Um, it's really imperative that everybody, you know, steps forward and, and uh, contributes uh, as best they can to resolving what is a national challenge. Much more so, I would say much more so than it was last year. But on the taking the dairy side as an example, do you think that there is need for better engagement between the beef processor and the, the beef producer on the ground on this issue? Because as you say, we are faced in a, in a new environment where climate change is a, is a reality. These extreme events are a reality that we're gonna to have to prepare for. So. Is there room there for more engagement um, to, to come up with solid plans, solid measures? Well, I think the, na the nature of the engagement between a, a beef farmer and the processor is very, very different to the nature of the engagement that happens between a dairy farmer and, and his dairy processor. More often than not, 
perhaps other than those who have producer organization contracts, uh, more often or not, the engagement is, you know, searching for coats for cattle when you have them ready for slaughter. But I do think for the beef sector, it is imperative that they engage with their farm advisor, whether it's Tagusk or others, uh, to, so that they are also availing of the best possible advice. Um, and certainly, you know, if the, the beef processing sector want to step into that space, they'd be very, very welcome also. But I think they are very different, the nature of the engagement between a dairy processor and, and remember, most dairy processors are owned themselves through the cooperative structure by those farmers that are supplying them. And that's very, very different to the engagement that happens between the beef sector and beef farmers. On the labour side, Minister, when we're looking ahead to, to the months ahead, the year ahead, um, labour has been another recurring issue on dairy farms. Where do you see the answer? Where is that labour force going to come from to help us get over that, that challenge? Um, this is an interesting uh, area. Um, you know, we've just come through a very significant crash. If you were talking a number of years ago about labour shortages, you know, people would have looked at you kind of askance. Uh, it certainly is an issue today and certainly is on the on the dairy side. Um, we asked uh, Tom Moran, uh, former Secretary General in the Department, to, to work with a number of uh, stakeholders and bring forward uh, a blueprint to address this issue. Part of the solution is work permits. Uh, I'm delighted to say that the Department of uh, Enterprise, Employment and Innovation has brought forward uh, proposals for some level of work permits, that is people coming in from outside the European economic area to work in the dairy industry. Um, but I think there are also other areas uh, where we can find solutions. There may be opportunities, say, for people who are uh, underemployed uh, either on their own farms or, or, or part-time working elsewhere to find opportunities on dairy farms. Um, in other sectors? Well, who may, who may be working um, in, in non-agricultural uh, employment, but who may, you know, might be able to, on, on the availability of training, and training is a key issue in terms of dairy farming, who may be available as relief milkers, for example. The Farm Relief Service has an important role to play. Exchange opportunities. Uh, we do find at the moment that there is a lot of exchange opportunities between uh, New Zealand, Australia and the UK. We're not that active in that space and that's something that we also has been looked at. On the reform of the Common Agricultural Policy post-2020, there has been, we're, we're well aware that there's going to be a huge emphasis on environment. Do you think looking down, looking down the road, will carbon emission output almost become the new quota system for the agricultural sector? Um, I think it has the potential to be that probably. Um, we, you know, we, we have credentials in, in the context of our uh, dairy production, for example, that are by international comparison quite good. I mean, our carbon f footprint for dairy output is, along with New Zealand, probably the best in the world. But is that sufficient to give the dairy sector a, a pass uh, in the context of our obligations that are legally binding now? No. Um, and I think it's not reasonable either, you know, that the expanding dairy sector, and I think it has potential to continue to expand, that it get, can expect others in the agri-space to carry out the, the sequestration for it. Um, so I think um, the dairy industry will have to do more. Simple things. Um, you know, the grassland management, grasses, you know, the more we can produce off grass, the more we reduce our carbon footprint. Um, 
the numbers of dairy farmers that are doing grassland uh, measurement is is quite you know it's it's of, of all sectors it's the highest but it's nowhere near at the level we'd like it to be um milk recording for example knowing which cows have the highest somatic cell count which cows have the highest uh, protein and fats content in their milk culling accordingly um you know we're not i i don't believe we have uh the required amount of farmers um, doing milk recording. No farmer really can can afford, in the context of our climate change obligations, to be carrying inefficient cattle. Whether you're dairying or whether you're beef, we need to you know, be constantly improving the genetic merit of our herd. And um, milk recording is a key tool in, in that regard. So um, the dairy sector um, needs to be aware, not least because the market is demanding it, that we need to be best in class in terms of um, our, our uh, sustainability credentials. We've done a lot, but we have a lot more to do. I'm sorry, Minister, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much for coming in and joining us on our first edition of Farmland. Now, Brexit. What will it mean for the Irish beef sector? Niall Claffey has this report. In Ireland, the implications of Brexit for Irish farmers across many enterprises is grey. In 2017, overall exports to the UK increased by approximately 7%, but Brexit has the potential to affect the competitiveness of Irish products. There is a dark cloud hanging over the Irish beef sector in particular, and the possible outcome in March 2019 is alarming. The Irish beef industry is dependent on exports to stay afloat. This comes as approximately 10% of all beef cattle slaughtered in Ireland are consumed domestically. The remaining 90% are exported. Ireland is the fifth largest net exporter of beef in the world. In 2017, Boer Bia figures indicate that the value of Irish beef exports climbed by 5%, amounting to approximately 2.5 billion euros, and the volume of beef available for export increased to 615,000 tonnes. Total exports for 2017 rose to approximately 556,000 tonnes. The UK remains the dominant destination for Irish beef. Just over 50% of all beef exported from Ireland in 2017 was destined for the UK market. 43% went to the rest of Europe, while the remaining six was shipped to non-European markets. Over two years on from the referendum, there is still a great deal of uncertainty surrounding Brexit, and there is no doubt that it will provide a huge challenge for the Irish beef industry going forward. In the UK, how will Irish produce compete with lower-priced beef from other world countries? Market diversification and existing market expansion across Europe and indeed worldwide will be the key to the future of the Irish beef industry. We have already witnessed access to the Chinese market in recent months. This market is expected to evolve, but its true value to the Irish beef sector can only be judged on what it yields for farmers. If we have a hard Brexit, where will over a quarter of a million tonnes of Irish beef go and what does it mean for the Irish beef farmer on the ground? Now, agri-food economist and former chairman of Meat Industry Ireland, Kieran Fitzgerald, is here with us to discuss exactly that. Kieran, where will that 250,000 tonnes of Irish beef go after Brexit? Well, I think there's obviously there's a huge difficulty in terms of looking at alternative markets. I mean, there are obvious markets when you look at where we currently export as you say, there's 250,000 tonnes goes to the UK, there's about another 200,000 tonnes goes to the rest of Europe, and then there's about 50,000 tonnes going worldwide. Um, if you go back 20 years ago, 
we would have exported an awful lot of beef to North Africa and the Middle East. And there are markets that will take beef, but the real issue is at what price uh, will, they, will that return? And uh, therefore, to be honest with you, what's really needed is a transitional arrangement above and beyond the EU-UK exit strategy. There needs to be a sort of a, a market transitional uh, arrangement that looks at the fact that um, the way this whole thing is evolving, where you know you, you could have a no-deal Brexit and the and the UK has tariff barriers, that rather than suddenly the shutters come down and you have to find a market for uh, half the beef you produce, uh, there needs to be uh, EU supports put in place that deal with orderly marketing that create a situation where over a five to ten year period, if the UK is is now going to be a market that returns way less than it did consistently, that you're given time to find new markets because you can't, other than you know by dumping products, you cannot find new markets in two and three years of a scale that we're talking about here. So. From a European perspective, they don't want the rest of the EU, which is a surplus beef area, uh, to have to absorb 200,000 tonnes of Irish beef. That'll bring down the price of beef right across Europe. Nobody in Europe really wants that. And a lot of the markets that we have access to uh, in third countries and even new markets like China, yes, in 10 years' time, will we'll, uh, take significant quantities, but they won't take it overnight either in volume terms and certainly not in price. So there needs to be a mix of what is actually happening, whereby there's a lot of investment uh, in new markets, um, which in the case of international markets, uh, has a, ma a major part of played by the government in terms of uh, the minister and that whole, um, I suppose, relationship piece whereby you open up a market at a state-to-state -state level, they become more comfortable with the veterinary standards, etc., etc., and there's markets and promotion. But that, that ha the pace at which that can happen uh, is not going to absorb the quantities we're talking about here in five years, never mind in, in a year overnight. So my sense of this is that if you go back about five years ago, the Russian market closed for uh, European products. And that was a huge knock to, right across uh, commodity markets, particularly in dairy and pork, for instance, we had some impact on the beef side. Now, what, what the European Union did uh, was they introduced a fund. Uh, it was under the commissionership of Phil Hogan at the time. Uh, that was, uh, that introduced a number of market supports. And that fund, I think it was 600 million euros, was based on, on uh, support for those countries most affected by the impact on trade. So in the case of Russia, when they stopped uh, importing European product, uh, it was Finland and Latvia and Estonia, the, the three Baltic states got uh, their, a, a big share of the supports because they, on a trade-weighted basis, they had traded most with Russia, and then everybody else got something on, on, on that basis. That's what's needed here uh, in, in, in the sort of short to medium term, and I'm talking about short to medium term, in the next six months, we need to see a construct around, well, there are discussions going on and everybody is, if you like, between the UK and the EU, uh, you know, sticking to the, their official policies on what is needed for the UK to leave in an orderly fashion, what the UK seems to want, this sort of, well, we live by WTO rules. In the midst of that, there are farmers with cattle to finish, there are livelihoods to be maintained. What's needed is a market transition 
uh, scheme very much based, I think, uh, on, the, on the Russian model of five or six years ago that says, well, in, what we're going to do is we're going to support the incomes of producers uh, and we're going to support uh, ordinary marketing. And I think that there, are, there are a number of ways in which that can be done in terms of income support. Um, there is, is that kind of the most realistic option in terms of, of holding and maintaining um, what we had, the market share we have at the moment? Is that a more realistic option than um, opting for diversifying markets as well in those other regions, such as uh, the Middle East, China, Japan, Southeast Asia? Yeah, absolutely, because the, the British market is the highest paying beef market in the world. Okay, so, you know, if you, if you look at uh, the markets in North Africa and the Middle East that we used to serve, they're now served by Brazil. So the cattle price in Brazil ranges from €2.50 to €2.80. Now, when we sold products into the Middle East, there was about a euro of an export subsidy on those products. Export subsidies are not going to be reintroduced. So, you know, to be blunt, you can't produce cattle in Ireland. Uh, and, and at sort of two euros fifty into a, you know, so therefore either the market price in those countries is going to have to rise significantly, which is not going to happen, you know, they, they can't afford it, or the European Union gives you a euro fifty in export subsidy. They won't do that. What they could do, and which would enable us, I think, to transition to a, a weaker UK market and also facilitate a longer term development of other markets, is to provide income supports. Like there is a quantifiable amount uh, that comes every year to Ireland in form of direct payments. Uh, of the 1.3 billion, I think about 850 million of that goes to the beef sector. That amount needs to be increased as part of this market transition. Uh, so that's one of the suggestions I think that needs to be looked at is there needs to be an income support system put in place. Uh, you can't just invent a system uh, where there hasn't been anything previously. So therefore, there's a good uh, precedent and there's plenty of information in terms of where the direct payments are going currently. Uh, they need to be increased to reflect uh, the, the price impact of either WTO tariffs into, into the UK okay, or whatever price impact we get from the fact that you know, the negotiations are either going slowly or badly, or there's going to be more sterling weakness. I think that's a far better and more practical way of dealing with this major dislocation in the markets than trying to pretend that there are markets out there that will take the beef and that will return a price. They just won't do both. They may take the beef, but they won't turn a, an e return an economic price. And at the same time, Kieran, the agri-industry in Ireland is beefing up, I suppose, their prospects in the UK. Recently, there has been a lot of acquisitions and developments um, in the UK to, to mitigate or to limit damage um, post-Brexit. So you have recently Keypack acquiring the two sisters, um, ABP and the development of their plant in Scotland, and uh, Don Meats and, and Umbia on their joint venture. What kind of message is that sending to Irish, far Irish beef farmers? What kind of message do you think that they're getting from those types of acquisitions happening where they're really looking to sustain what they have over there and potentially opt for the English beef market instead? Well, I think it's a very pragmatic message, to be honest with you. I mean, all of those 
investments are about sustaining a business that has been built on supplying the UK uh, retail chain. So what the, the companies are doing is reinforcing that business against the threat that, uh, you know, their, their ability to supply from the Irish side is going to be under threat. Um, it wouldn't make any sense, and in fact it would lead to a lesser return for Ireland Inc. if you were to ignore opportunities to, to, to strengthen your access. I mean, what those businesses are based on is, is um, partnership with the customer. So if the customer has an option to either, uh, for you to, to buy more resources in the UK, for instance, or to go with somebody else, then I think from a, a practical perspective, but also from an Irish beef industry perspective, it's far better that that growth is being taken up on the Irish side. I mean, the other part of all this, though, is, is that, you know, when you, when you look at um, what the UK is going to do into the future, the UK needs to import 400,000 tonnes of beef every year. That's the, the base. They don't produce all the beef they, they consume themselves. And there are questions then of, of where does that come from uh, if Irish beef is priced out of the market or European beef is priced out of the market. Um, we're looking at situations where that beef can come from Brazil, etc., etc. Uh, so I think there's a far better prospect of having a reasonable uh, or a more reasonable in a situation where we're dealing with a major change and major market fracture. Uh, if you like, marketing arrangement around Irish beef, where Irish beef companies uh, into the UK have strengthened their position. If we become just a marginal supplier, then we'll be dismissed on price and access over time. So there's a degree of pragmatism here. But I, you know, if you go back to the overall challenge, the overall challenge here is a European Union policy one, to be honest with you. Yes, there's the UK EU discussions, but while that's going on, what the European Union needs to do is to come up with a market um, transition project, as, a, as I've described, that, that deals with the fact that there's a market shock and make sure I think ultimately this is this is where I would see the kernel of this. The UK has unilaterally voted to leave the European Union. There was a lot of talk at the time that said, we can't have a situation, we Europeans, where the UK benefits from exit of the European Union. What we, whatever about that, what we certainly can't have is a situation where Irish farmers and the Irish food industry uh, is, is worse off because the UK decided to leave the European Union. That's not in the interests clearly of, of, the, of the Irish farmer and the Irish food industry, but it's certainly not in the interest of the European Union that the consequence of one large country with a large market exiting is that a smaller country uh, becomes disadvantaged. So, you know, I, I think there has to be much more focus at European level on ways in which you deal with practical ways of ensuring incomes to be farmers are compensated uh, in terms of this uh, market dislocation and as I said there's a measurable amount every year that comes in direct payments uh, there are ways in which you can calculate the price impacts if there are and say well right we're going to increase those direct payments by a third or whatever there's even the possibility uh, if you were to look at it in a bit more detail of introducing a slaughter premium over a period of time even for five years so that cattle that are slaughtered here in a situation where you know suddenly there are WTO tariffs come into the UK, which would amount to a, a catastrophic event. You're, you're talking about, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the average beef price. But in terms of four quarter cuts, most of, uh, you know, the tariff would be greater than the price. But hopefully 
things won't be as, as dramatic as that. But in any and all situations, there are ways in which the European Union can deal with the challenge of making sure that the Irish beef farmer and the Irish food industry isn't worse off because our neighbour decided to leave the European Union by means of increased income supports or a slaughter premium or whatever the transitional uh, best transitional supports for the beef industry can be. And Kieran, you've noted before that uh, UK retailers since the since the BSE crisis back in the 1990s have actually in some ways demanded higher standards on uh, on food than the EU um, and there are lots of concerns about a cheap food policy in the UK post Brexit can you really imagine a complete turnaround on that type of scenario uh, well it wouldn't be consistent uh, but you know um, I suppose if, if you look uh, to the point that, that I have made uh, previously, that uh, a lot of the standards around the production of beef and some of the standards, you know, evolving standards, like things like animal welfare, uh, et cetera, et cetera, have been driven by the, by the retailer saying, well, we're, we're t getting messages from our, our consumers. They're, uh, they're, they're concerned about these things. They're concerned about climate change. All of that has led to a situation where uh, from an Irish beef producing perspective, we would argue there are costs that we, we incur in terms of serving that UK market, which aren't the sort of you know, input costs that we normally describe, but they are about serving a high quality market. Now, if the UK supermarkets were to decide, well, you know, the, the last 10 years has been a sort of, you know, it is what it is, but we can get very cheap beef in Brazil. We don't care about the rainforest coming down. We don't care about the fact that uh, it seems there are irregularities in meat inspection over there every year or two, uh, and we're going to just make sure it's cheap. That would be very dramatic, and I don't think uh, the European, the UK consumer would be thrilled. I think there is another challenge, though, which is that uh, certainly the discounters in the UK, the Aldis and Lidl's, have prioritised UK origin beef, uh, and they have also prioritised a low-cost model and are saying well you know whatever is going to happen we'll try we, we sell more UK beef uh, and but we won't see price inflation I'd be concerned about that because I think um, the reality is if, if sterling weakens again and if we are looking at a situation where um, there are even small trade uh, charges introduced you, you, the price of beef in the UK needs to increase for us to be able to sell at a normal level. Uh, and in the natural scheme of things, that should happen when beef is, becomes ha harder to produce and more costly. Um, my concern is that the discounters uh, have a no inflation policy and that the, 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 the big four, the Asda Sainsbury's, which you know, could be one uh, retailer by the time th these things go through next year, and Tesco and others will say, well, we're not going to do beef inflation uh, either. In that situation, too, we need to look at ways in which uh, there are income responsive measures introduced by the European Union. And I, I think I, I really do go back to that being the core uh, response here. 
it you go back to the original question, Claire, and, and, and the point that's made in the VTR. Like, you cannot take a situation that has evolved over whatever hundreds of years, but certainly in the last 20 years, whereby we export, you know, 50% of our beef to our nearest neighbour, a neighbour that has 65 million people, whereas we only have 5 million. Uh, our beef is largely fresh, which means it has a premium. The logistics of getting fresh beef to the rest of Europe, never mind to the world, are very expensive and in, in reality a lot of beef would have to be frozen which immediately hits its price. So all of that can't be just expected to be accommodated by the Irish beef farmer and the Irish food industry. That needs to be accommodated by transition arrangements and um, if you go back to the time that we joined the European Union in the 1970s and uh, ourselves the UK and Denmark, you had eight years of a transition uh, arrangement when you were entering the EU. You had price uh, barometers and you had price adjustments to, that took place for those eight years on the basis that you were coming into a different market. Again, this needs to be reflected in terms of a, a, a transitional market support policy uh, for the Irish beef farmer uh, and the Irish beef industry uh, over a period, of, I would say, three to five years. Thanks very much for that, Kieran. Um, that's all we have time for, but lots of food for thought in, in your commentary. And next up, we're going to be looking at farm safety. Sylvester Phelan has this report. Thomas Finn is a pig and sheep farmer from County Cork. Back in July, he wrote a letter detailing his experiences of a farm accident he was in, urging fellow farmers to think safety first. I had planned to do some, um, just spraying off a bit of ground underneath an electric fence and sheep wire just to kill uh, some of the weeds and that. So I had the quad prepared full, so I headed down to do it. I was just literally five minutes into the job, starting off, and I ended up on a piece of ground that was sloped uh, or inclined. And uh, the quad started to turn over. Like, I knew it was gone, I knew it was turning over, but it was within a split second it happened. The quad was coming after me down the hill, just a small slope. It, it was rolling in my direction, and I was trying to get out of its way, but it, was, it just caught my legs at the end of the slope and I was just caught underneath it then. I actually thought it was going to come on top of me. It was at the bottom of the slope, so that's probably why, why it stopped, really, you know, other than that. It was gone on top of me, probably. My two legs were caught. I tried to get one of them free. I failed to do so a couple of times, so I, got, I eventually got one of them free, which was this one, the broken one, and the other one was stuck. And I don't know what I used, but I, I, I used something to lever or push the quad with my hands off. Thomas had broken his ankle in the accident. After a struggle to get free, he managed to make it back to his house with improvised crutches and call for help. After tests, a hospital consultant told him the damage. He needed to operate on it, put two screws in my leg, put the piece, which meant cutting a section of the ankle there, both there, and screwing it back together. Now on the mend, Thomas was asked why the accident happened and what he'd do differently if he was in the same situation again. It happened because I didn't fully assess where I was going with it. I left my phone after me. It happened because the quad was probably top-heavy, uh, centre of gravity change when I was on the incline, and it happened in a split second. I caused the accident, I suppose. Do you know, I didn't assess what I was doing. Quads are dangerous. What else would I do? Different? Probably take me time. Take me time, I'd, I'd assess. I'd be much more careful with the weight on the back. And an incline like that, you're much more vulnerable, so I'd be much more careful in what I'd be doing. You know, it only takes a split second, so. I can't really farm, I can't do anything physical. 
It's frustrating, it's mentally frustrating that I, I can't do day-to-day things. Making a cup of tea is difficult. I can't carry a cup of tea from the kettle to the... So you're trying to watch someone else do what you would do much easier or yourself or, you know, it's frustrating and so... Following his experience, we asked Thomas what his message would be for farmers. For a quad bike, like, they're a useful tool in the right area, you know. Wear your safety equipment, consider the role there, take your time and um, assess the ground you're travelling on. I'd be safety conscious, I'd be the same as any other lad, so I'd have walked past a hundred quad demonstrations and not looked. Since it has happened, I've heard of numerous occasions where people have been kid- killed off of quads, like so. They're not, um, they're not simple. I'm joined by MEP and First Vice President of the European Parliament, Mairead McGuinness. Mairead, Thomas's story there, like many stories, really illustrates how easily accidents can happen on farms. And mm-hmm. I just want to point out some figures. Um, so according to the Health and Safety Authority, in 2016, 24 people lost their lives in farm-related rela- deaths. In 2017, that figure was 24. This year already, 16 people have lost their lives in farm-related deaths. So the average, Mm. according to the HSA, over the last 10 years, is we're hitting an annual mark of about 21 lives. And yet, at the same time, there is a big spend on farm safety. The HSA has been allocated 500,000 in 2017, more than 600,000 in Mm. 2018. And there are a lot of campaigns out there. This year in particular, there's a focus campaign, month-long campaigns focusing on livestock, on um, vehicles, farm safety and vehicles. And we're working towards um, maintenance on farms next month. So there's a huge spend out there, there's huge awareness, there's huge effort going into helping the numbers come down, yet at the same time, it's not happening. Can you pinpoint exactly why we are where we are? Well, I think when I hear you recite those figures, sometimes we get immune to the reality. You're talking about people. So there's a a man, women, children, and there are names to those numbers, which I think when we rattle the story, we forget what's behind them. You know, the story that I watched there with Thomas is a very real one. He was honest enough to write to Agriland to highlight the fact that he believes he actually caused the accident, that he didn't take enough time. When you ask me to pinpoint exactly, uh, I think it is that farms and farmers and farmyards are treated and are treated by farmers themselves as different than any other sector. I think that the family farm, which we all love and promote, has a certain aura around it of warmth and nostalgia. And we don't think of the family farm as having strict safety rules and regulations and that everybody complies with them. And I've done a lot of thinking about this issue and it's been very upsetting because I know people who've been killed and injured. And and, you know, the injuries are horrific uh, because Thomas's injury, as he said, he can't make a cup of tea. He can't actually hold anything now and he can't farm. So there's a lot of people who are not killed on farms, but whose lives are drastically changed because of accidents with livestock or machinery or trips and falls and that we don't really hear those stories because that's a lifelong consequence. So, you know, the more I've thought about this and the more I've compared it with other industries is because I think of the farming and the family association, people look differently towards it. Farmers are very aware that, you know, accidents happen. I mean, how many neighbors and friends, and they talk about this all the time, 
but do they really change behavior because of all of these campaigns? Um, and I think we have to ask very big questions about that because, you know, to say, oh, on average, we're losing over 20 people every year on Irish farms. And in Northern Ireland, they have particular problems as well that we cannot accept. We just cannot accept that loss of life. Uh, we cannot accept the number of accidents that result in deep injuries to people on farms. And yet a lot of us are struggling to know what is the right thing to do. Because again, the family nature of farming means that it's really upsetting forever when you lose somebody on a farm by accident, because you're walking across where they have died, you're dealing with the same machines that they might have been killed uh, using, or the livestock reminds you constantly so that all accidents uh, related to workplaces are horrific. On farms, I think there's a really familial association then. And I know I've talked to people who've um, lost loved ones in farm accidents, and it would just break your heart. It really would break your heart. So maybe it is that family nature that we need to look at. I'm just going to look at the different areas, the most dangerous areas that have been pointed out in a couple of moments. But first, you just mentioned there about um, comparing farm safety procedures um, to other mm. industrial environments, to people employed yeah. in other industrial environments. Do you think safety measures, safety training needs to be brought in on a, on a mandatory basis on far, in, farm, in farming compared to other well, industrial environments? I mean, just this week already, I was in a plant that makes pharmaceuticals. And before I got inside the building, um, you walked on the pedestrian walkway. And if I tried to cut a corner, the plant uh, people, those who work in the company said, no, you must walk this way for health and safety reasons. So the attention to detail on safety in all sectors other than farming is quite rigid. Um, and that works. So that company have no uh, accidents or deaths in their plant. And if they did, it would be horrific for them. It would impact their reputation. And obviously there would be consequences on farms. I see safety notices. I see it on our own farm. Uh, do I see the same detailed attention to safety as I would with other sectors that I deal with all the time? No, I don't, frankly. Um, I think farmers, when they get on their quad, they see very clearly you should wear a safety helmet. You should not have somebody on the quad with you. How many times have I seen a farmer wear a safety helmet on a quad? I actually can't remember. I saw one at the Tullamore show, but it was a demonstration of farm safety. So I think that um, we, we may see the signs, but we don't have that same attention and follow up. And I suppose it's understandable because a lot of farmers are sole operators. They're doing many different jobs. In industry, there are particular jobs, particular people, and you might be able to regulate better. But I think that's not an excuse that we can use anymore because if you compare other sectors with farming, the deaths and accidents on farms are just appalling. And as you said, we're not making an impact. Do we need to see the same rigor? I think we're going to have to look at how we can, if you like, implant that mindset in farms that safety comes first. And it's not just words, it has to be actions. The most problematic areas are livestock, farm machinery and trips and falls around the farmland. Speaking as a farmer yourself, Maraith, what kind of measures would you propose to bring in in those three areas? 
Well, you know, I'm not a farm safety expert. All I can talk about is personal experience and I suppose being a policymaker that I'm just, you know, troubled by the fact that we're not, not making enough progress because the legacy of accidents and deaths is just horrific. Uh, and also our food supply chain should not be burdened with the reality that we have this high level of, of accidents on farms. I mean, when you think of livestock and the number of women who've been uh, killed with livestock, they've just walked into a field, perhaps counting or, or feeding stock and they've been trampled upon. This is quite Quite horrific and indeed we all know people who've been so impacted i think the, the for me the biggest issue is uh, the balance between being very absolute about safety so that the minute you put your boots on you think the job i'm going to do what are the risks again going back to thomas uh, his experience he now says that you know he rushed out to do something quickly in a hurry he didn't think what are the chances or what do I need to be careful about here so that it really is to try and train and I think training is important a lot of farmers will disagree with me they don't think they need training but honestly training is really important it puts you in a different place it opens your eyes to things that you take for granted like the wire that's lying there I've always stepped over that but there'll be a day come when you're a bit stiffer and you won't step over it and you'll trip and you'll break a hip so I do think that training and constant reminding is very important it's what other sectors do and also that when you go into the farmyard it's not an extension of your house um, of your home it's actually a place of work and you'd need to have a different mindset um, it is going to take a lot of effort to change mindsets I think we've done a huge amount on awareness I think that's there already you mentioned things like mandatory training and you know the minute and, and I know you see farmers again because they operate on their own and they're individualistic and I know because I'm from one and I'm married to a farmer they don't like somebody saying you have to do this so is there a way that we can persuade people that yes you do have to do this because guess what it's for your benefit it's for the benefit of your children who are on the farm or those who might come to the farm and maybe coax people maybe a bit of a carrot and a stick approach that says look this is for your own good and you know it's important to take an hour out to get training other people have to do it on other sectors and um, but I am always conscious that there is still a little resistance to that but I think we're going to have to work around it you mentioned there about the carrot and stick approach recently there have been some calls about potentially linking farm safety to direct payments to the the common agricultural policy where do you stand on that? Do you think that would be a good move? Well, there are links already in the rural development part where you know you can use funds, uh, rural development funds, national governments and the Irish government have used um, CAP money uh, supported by national funding to uh, improve safety on farms. And a lot of good work has been done, protection of open pits and all sorts of things. So already we have a link. Um, we're going to be discussing this week uh, and in the future the common agricultural policy and how should uh, money be spent. I think we need to focus on the rural development part first. And as, um, if you like, one of the ways of encouraging farmers not only to take up money to improve safety, but also to train uh, to improve their safety methods. The step towards saying, well, um, we might penalise you on your single payment if you don't have a safe farm, I don't think it should be off the table. I think we need to be very clear that um, in any sector where we're having this extensive loss of life and, and injury uh, and the costs and the trauma associated with us, that we may need to look at some point around that. It'd be interesting to see in the debate this week in Parliament whether other colleagues uh, you know, are aware of this. I have to say I was quite disappointed 
about the lack of debate and discussion in Europe about farm safety. I've, I've raised the issue myself. Um, and people will talk about production and they'll talk about weather and safety kind of comes backwards. So I've been one, the, the only one, but I've got some support to push this at a European Union level. I don't think this story should be to farmers if, if you're not safe, we're going to cut your penalty because then you're going to have a clash um, because obviously farm payments are important. But on the other hand, if we say to farmers, look, it's important you have a safe farmyard and safe farm practice, and the common agriculture policy should support you in that, then maybe we can work towards saying in some extreme cases, if you don't have a safe farm, maybe we need to look at saying, well, we can't support your farm, and we may need to look at the link between payments. Just on the EU, Mairead, the Eurostat figures suggest there's around between 500 and 520 farm-related deaths across the EU mm. every year. Obviously, that doesn't include the likes of Greece or Spain or Bulgaria who, who don't record the data, and the Nordic countries as well, they only include the working age of farm-related mm. deaths, so they don't have those under the age of 18 or those who are retired. Um, but you are working on this EU oh, yeah. response as you said, and you are want mandatory uh, data to be collected across all EU states. How will that Im how will that uh, affect policy? Well, first of all, if you don't know what's happening on farms, how can you make a policy? We know in Ireland, and that's really good. But I was quite shocked to hear, and you've just listed countries count differently. So we can't have a coordinated view of what's happening on farms across Europe. It also, I think, would give us a, a story of our food production base. And it might tell us things we don't want to know, that there are a lot of casualties. Um, producing our food and that those of us who eat three meals a day and maybe more need to get into our heads um, as a public, uh, as citizens, is that acceptable? That when we go to our, you know, cereals or dairy or whatever, that there are, are these levels of injury. So what my purpose was, and it was difficult to get this across the line, is let's all count, get the statistics, make sure member states are reporting back in. And then you have the evidence and the information to form policy at a European Union level. Because while Ireland is doing great work, you know, farm organizations, the HSA, everybody's, you know, on the right track and talking the talk. I think if there's a European Union-led policy, it gives more strength uh, to the focus on farm safety. I think it also might make some member states who aren't counting realise that they have a big problem. In Ireland, we're very open to the reality and the harsh reality that we do have a problem and we have to do something about it. And it would be good that other countries knew that as well. Well, we'll be watching very closely, Mairead. That's all we have time for. Thank you very much for coming into us. And thank you very much to all our guests for taking part in the first edition of Farmland. If you would like to get in touch with the Farmland or Agriland teams, you can call us or email us directly or get in touch on our social media channels. Thank you at home for watching and we'll see you next time.